in chapter 4 this week, beginning in verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Okay. Ten verses. Great warning in these verses from James. He warns us about the danger of our very disordered desires, our very misplaced affections. The object of our disordered desires, our misplaced affections, can come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. There are all kinds of things that we can have disordered desire or misplaced affections towards. Not just objects, but but positions, possessions, relationships, all kinds of things that we can have disordered desires toward. And so many times those passions that we have, they become idols that lead us into terrible, terrible sin. When our affections are fixed on anything over and above Christ, we become idol worshipers. Not only are we guilty of idolatry, But as believers who are purchased, bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, who are married into His body, who have become the bride of Christ, we also, through our idolatry, become adulterers. Christians have a life that is to be wholly different from the world. There's a reason that the Old Testament refers to the people of God as a peculiar people. There's a reason that Jesus warns us that the world's going to hate you. They're going to hate you for my sake. They're going to revile you. And they're going to revile you for my sake. Because you are mine. We are purchased for God through Christ. The bride of Jesus and nobody else. The bride of Jesus and nothing else. So I want to take some time this morning to speak to you for just a little bit about the inward battle for a Godward life. The Apostle Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians that whether we eat or drink, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. He, He describes a life that is Godward 
in its approach. A life that is Godward in its affections, Godward in its pursuits, Godward in its relationships with others. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32, he follows that up. He says, whatever you eat or drink, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And then verse 32, he says, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Amen. Amen. So this, this characterization and this, this commandment that, that Paul gives us comes at the end of a passage in Corinthians which is about Christian liberty and the freedoms that we have in Jesus Christ. Where Paul begins the, the argument by saying all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And all things are lawful, but not all things build up. So he tells us through his discourse in that section of Corinthians, his letter, that, that we must at times lay aside our liberty in Christ for the sake of those who have a weak conscience. Amen. And he ends it with, don't, don't offend the Jews, don't offend the Greeks, don't offend the church. And instead, seek to please others. What did James just tell us at the end of chapter 3? A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. Paul cautions us to live at peace with one another as much as we can. And to do that, he says, there are times when you must lay aside your Christian liberties, the freedom that you have in Christ. Amen. Are not all things legal? Sure, but all things aren't good. Are not all things legal? Sure, but not all things build up. In fact, if you exalt your liberty above everything else, and you say, I'm going to have it the way I want it, no matter what, then what you have done is you have served self and not God. Amen. You are not living a Godward life. Amen. Certainly not one that glorifies God because you've placed yourself on a pedestal. And so Paul tells us that our guiding principle in life, when we make decisions about what we ought to do, whether it's to eat or drink or partake or abstain or go here or go there or sit or stand or whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. So when we confront lies and wickedness, we speak the truth in love. We are willing to lay aside certain liberties for the sake of the gospel message and for the glory of God. We are willing to seek the advantage of others rather than trying to fulfill selfish ambition. In other words... We have no other gods before gods. Our life is lived in service to God and His kingdom. We find satisfaction in our souls from serving the Lord, not from other things. Amen. And as Paul puts it, we do that by seeking the benefit of others over our own benefit so that they might be saved, so that they will come to know the same glory and the same grace that we know through adoption in Christ. Wow, seeking the benefit of others. Talk about idol-killing and pride-killing behavior. 
That is a Godward life, living in such a way as to bring others to Christ by the witness of your good conduct. You remember last week, we looked at the end of James chapter 3. Isn't that exactly what James said when he asked us the question at the beginning of the passage? He said, who is wise among you? So I want you to look around you, church, and, and see who is wise. And then James tells us who we ought to consider wise. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So this doesn't happen. That good conduct in the meekness of wisdom does not happen with disordered desires, with disordered affections. Church, the, the struggle for real joy, for lasting, satisfying, serious joy, lies in the struggle over our disordered affections. What do we love? What do we pursue? What satisfies our soul? Last week we began with that question, who is wise and understanding among you? And this morning James asks us another question. I believe that in asking us this question, he's beginning a discourse that puts his, uh, even a, a heavier finger on the problem of our sinful pride. And the idolatry that springs, that is the root of that sinful pride. Specifically, he talks about the, the bitter war between our prideful desires to serve the idol of self and our righteous desires to serve God. You know, there's a struggle there. Paul says, I want to do good, but I don't. I don't want to do evil, but I do. Who can save me from this wretched body of death? Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. At first glance, when we come to this passage, it looks like James may be changing direction. He's changing his train of thought in verse 1 with the question that he asked about fights and quarrels. But we started with who is wise among you last week. These questions are related. James says that those who have wisdom from God, they show it by living a, a beautiful Godward life, life that's full of, uh, that's pure and peaceable, and full of mercy, and good fruits, and, and, and impartial and sincere. A beautiful Godward life. That's how you know who is wise. But those who have the wisdom of the world, how does he describe that? It's a life marked by disorder and every evil practice. You remember that? Where envying, where uh, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every vile practice. So that's the wisdom of the world. Direct contrast from the wisdom of God, the life that is beautiful and Godward. So we go back to James chapter 4 in our passage this morning. Look back to, chapter, or to verse 1. James asks us, what causes fights? What causes quarrels? And then he answers, isn't it because of your warring passions? Because your desires are at war within you? Disordered affections having passion for the wrong things and selfish things, selfish ambition and jealousy that cause believers to wage war in themselves. Because we have a desire to serve Christ and our neighbor, and that comes into direct conflict with our desire to serve self. If we were pure in heart, as Jesus told us to be in Matthew 5, 8, if we had the wisdom from God, which is first pure, as James describes it, would we be at war with our passions within us? Pure hearts 
are undivided toward Christ. You can't be pure and divided. That's the very definition of impure. Impure is adulterated. There's other stuff mixed in with it. Are there passions and temptations that arise as we serve Christ with the pure heart? You bet. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, was He not? There are passions and temptations that arise as we serve with a pure heart. Jesus certainly had a pure heart. Yet, the undivided pure heart is single in its pursuit of Christ, and it is not moved or shaken by those temptations or passions that arise to come against us, to try to war against us. The battles over those passions are very quickly won by the superior joy and treasure that we have in lasting relationship with Jesus Christ. James shows us what happens to those who are warring with their passions. And when their warring passions win out, in verse 2, that internal conflict leads to an external conflict. Whenever jealousy and selfish ambition creates battles inside us, they disrupt the relationships outside of us. That's when we see quarrels and fights break out in churches and families. I've told you before, anytime you get into a fight with someone, there's always pride at play. Anytime you're offended, there's always pride at play. There's always a root of pride. There's always a war of passions. Disordered desire. That is an enemy of a peaceful life, an enemy of a Godward life. What makes Christians fight among themselves, James asks? Why is it that churches would split over the color of the carpet? Or the kind of songs that we sing? Or where we put the piano? Or even things more trivial? James tells us, your passions are at war in you. There is an idolatrous desire for an adulterous affair. Now, it's not wrong to have passions and desires, certainly. But the problem is that we are passionate about the wrong things. We tend to want what we are not intended to have. Our desires and passions, they, they often lead us away from the eternal, glorious treasures that we have and that God has offered us and, and freely provided to us in Jesus Christ. And instead, they lead us to pursue lesser, temporary pleasures. This is idolatry. Idol worship is the worst kind of evils in the sight of God. In fact, if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, uh, we just recently finished up with the Ten Commandments and we talked about idolatry and how that is at the root of, of, of every sin. When you break it all down, just to the very basic level, at the root of every sin is a root of idolatry. Even pride. Pride, with, with all of the host of sins that, that, pride, that spring out of pride, the root of pride is idolatry. Who does pride serve? Self. And when I serve self, who's sitting on the throne? Self. Not Christ. It's idolatry. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, he wrote, speaking for God, For, I have, for my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, 
the fountain of living waters. And two, they have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is a picture of pure evil in the sight of God. It is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden that condemned all mankind. It's what the people of Israel did over and over and over again. It's what we do all the time when we forsake the living waters for our own pleasures. Imagine that you're out in the desert. It's dry, it's hot, and you are thirsty. You can feel the thirst, right? You know it's you're thirsty, you can feel it. You're dehydrated, you're thirsty, and you're weak. And you just happen upon a fountain of water coming out of the ground. It means spraying up out of the ground. And it's crystal clear water, pure, cool, perfect for drinking and quenching your thirst. But instead of going to the water and drinking, you pull the shovel out of your backpack and start digging a hole in the ground because you want to provide your own water. And so you dig and you dig and you work and you work in the heat and you dig down and you dig down until you have dug a big cistern in the sand. It's the deserts. There's no water. But there's this fountain over there. So what do you do? You go to the fountain to get water so you can put it in your cistern to drink water from your cistern. So you've done that. You go to the fountain and you get water and you pour it in your cistern because you want to drink water from the cistern that you dug. And what do you have in the bottom of your cistern? Just a muddy mess. And you'd rather drink water from the... You'd rather consume mud from that muddy mess because you dug it than to drink water from the fountain that was freely given. You forsake the fountain of living water and say in your heart, I would rather have the mud from this hole that I've dug because I dug it. That is the essence of wickedness and idolatry, to reject the fountain of living water in order to seek satisfaction from something of your own making. In verse 4 of our text this morning, James hammers it home. He says, you adulterous people. He didn't pull punches there. You adulterous people. That's how I know that all the things he's talked about in verses 2, verse 3, you know, you desire and you don't have, you covet, you can't obtain, you won't ask, you won't even go to the source of the fountain, the source of the water to ask for water. And if you do go to the source of water to ask for water, it's so you can pour it into your mud hole and drink from the mud hole. All of those things are rooted in one thing, the idolatry of an adulterous affair with the world. James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? In other words, he says, you're, you're trying to serve two masters, and you can't serve two masters. Amen. You're trying to have two spouses, and you can't have two spouses. You're either bound to one or the other, not both. 
That's the same kind of thing that James uh, told us back in chapter 3 when he said that salt water and fresh water cannot come from the same spring. What is it that gets us to this point where James says, you adulterous people? Why does he lay it out like that so harshly? You know, in the Garden of Eden, think back. Everything was great. There was, there was no good reason for Eve or Adam to do what they did. They had it perfect. They were in pristine conditions. Walking and talking with God. They had every need, every need that they had was met. There was nothing that they could have wanted for. There's no good reason for them to sin, for them to disobey the Lord. Not that there is ever a good reason. But you know, sometimes there, we look at some people in their situation and we look at and we, we think, if I knew what they knew and I was going through what they were going through, no, they're, they're absolutely wrong. There's no excuse for it. But I, I might have made the same choice. I don't get it with Adam and Eve. It was perfect. What drives us to, to, to sin against God? What drives us to disobey, to, to choose the muddy water over the, the perfect, pure fountain that He has to, for us to drink from? We think, well, that's Adam and Eve. They had it perfect. You know, we've got every. No, we don't have any excuse either. We are bought in Christ for a perfect kingdom with a crown of glory just awaiting for Him to come and, and usher us into to all eternity of glory. Amen. What reason do we have to ever say, Lord, I don't want that? I'd rather have this mud hole that I've dug. I want to drink from that crystal clear water. I want to drink from this toxic waste that I've got. We are adopted as heirs and joint heirs with Christ, with a crown waiting for us. What, what reason do we have? Amen. Amen. But we do it, don't we? Yes, sir. Don't we do it? <laughs> Boy, don't we do it. We are disobedient in the same way that disrespectful children are disobedient because our worldly passions and affections are at war within us and we let them win. Amen. Amen. We'd rather drink from a mud hole and the fountain of living waters. Paul tells us the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, understand this, that in the last days there will be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. They're going to love themselves and all the stuff that they build. In chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 10, he says, Demas talks about his friend Demas. He says, you know, he was in love with the present world and deserted me. So Demas left the ministry, left Paul and the ministry because he was in love with the present world. He didn't like the attention, the negative attention that Paul was getting in the name of Christ. He said, I don't want that. I'd rather have a cistern of my own digging. Why is it such a big deal? Why is it so wrong to be friends with the world? Isn't that what James says? You're friends with the world, you're enemy with God. Why is it so wrong to be friends with the world? Because it is an adulterous affair. Amen. 
I had written this note down um, on this passage two or three years ago. It's what I love about my software that I use to take notes. I take notes, and they're always there. I, when I read back through it, there's my, there's my lengthy note that I wrote. I wrote a note about, about imagine that you're, you're married, and, and your spouse has a, has a significant other. It's, oh, there's nothing to it. I want to be married to you, but I'm going to hang out with that guy too. I'm going to be married to you, but I'm going to enjoy the benefits of this guy too. And then along the way, she writes you notes. Well, I love you. And it gives you gifts. Brings you offerings. And every single one of those makes you almost gag in disgust because you know it's not true. That's why it's such a wicked thing to be friends with the world and try to be friends with God too. That's why Jesus said that if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. I'd rather know where you stand. I'd rather you be hot or cold because if you're lukewarm, I can't stand you. We are made to be one with Christ. So to be friendly with the world is is to cherish the things of the world. We, We value the approval of the world. We want, we, want, we want affirmation from the world. And so what we do is we'll, we'll be ready to disguise our loyalty to Christ, our marriage, and we'll, we'll, we'll put a veil over it and kind of hide it so the world can't see that we're married. So that we can gain acceptance of the wicked world. Romans 8 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus told us in Matthew 6, we can't serve two masters. We will either love the one and hate the other or or be devoted to one and and despise the other. That's why James tells us, In verse 4, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, now verse 5 is a tough one. Not tough because of what it says, but it's a tough one because of the translations. It is widely regarded as one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible to translate. And that's because of how the, the original Greek biblical language is, is worded. The, the mechanics of the language from biblical Greek to English, um, verb agreement, modifiers, tenses, capitalization rules, all those things come into play here. To be clear, James isn't, when he wrote it in original Greek, it's not particularly clear what he means or what he, what he says particularly when we translate it into English. Your, your King James Version and, and other notable versions will point uh, this verse to a failure of man's spirit. Spirit, lowercase s. In both cases, it's lowercase s, spirit. But the problem with Greek capitalization is that we don't know because all the letters are capital. 
We don't know. It's not about the Spirit or just the Spirit of life that when God breathed life into man, that's that the Spirit that gave us life. So the King James and other translations, they'll point to the failure of man's spirit, saying that the Spirit that God, when he, God gave us life, our spirit is prone to lustful envy. And then the ESV and other translations like it, they'll point to God's righteous jealousy over the spirit that he puts in us. The same way that a husband would be jealous over a wife, or let, let's say zealous for his wife because he cherishes her and he, he loves her. So he's righteously jealous of her, protective of her. So both of those, if you've got one translation over the other, you know, I've got the ESV up here. If you've got a King James, you've got that, that's fine. Both of those translations, they are consistent with the biblical narrative on the whole. Both of them serve the message that James is preaching without doing violence to the message that James is preaching or without changing the message that James is preaching. His point is, when he, in verse 5, his point is, look, you can look to the rest of Scripture to see that what I'm saying is true. So depending on how you translate it, it's either he's saying that God gave life to man and the spirit of life that God put in him when he breathed to him and that spirit is prone to lustful, in, uh, lustful envy. And that, that certainly is borne out by the testimony of Scripture, wouldn't you agree? Or you can say that James is saying God is zealous over the spirit of life that he put into us and he demands our full devotion. And that is certainly borne out in the testimony of the rest of Scripture. So don't get hung up on that particular verse when you see translation differences. Because that's not, I mean, it's not that that verse is not important. All Scripture is important. But that's not James's main point. That's a supporting argument that he's making. He gets to his main point in verses 6 and 7. He says, but he gives more grace. So James just got done telling us how adulterous we are how wicked our passions are that war within us, how they all cause all kinds of conflict within us. And now we get to James's gospel message. James, who is the apostle, who is accused of preaching a works-based salvation. How often have we heard James pitted against Paul? Paul preaches grace and James preaches works. You know, he had all that talk about faith without works being dead. This guy shows us how desperately wicked we are. Just how lost we are. He straight up tells us, you must tame the tongue. You remember that? If you don't tame the tongue, your religion is worthless. And then he says, no one can tame the tongue. It seems to me that what James is saying is throw yourself on the altar of God's grace. You who have warring passions within you. And which one of us does that not describe? Throw yourself on the altar of God's grace. You adulterous people. Throw yourself on the altar of God's grace. Humble yourself. Kill your pride. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, he will flee. Quit giving Satan the wind. Now, I'm going to take a sidestep from my notes here and just talk about a bit of... Let's apply this personally. 
does that actually bear out in your, your life? When you're facing great temptation, you just say, oh, I'm just going to resist and the devil will flee. Does he flee from you? In fact, let's say that your doctor has told you you cannot eat chocolate ever again. But you love chocolate. I'll make it personal. Salt. I, man, I put salt on everything. I learned it from my mother. I love salt. Salt is very bad for you, particularly in the quantities in which I consume it. So if I were told, you shall not ever eat salt again, I would just crave some salty french fries. Amen. In fact, you can't call them french fries unless they have salt on them. Right. Amen. Amen. Unsalted butter shouldn't be a thing. That's yuck. But the, the more you tell me I can't have it, the more I'm going to want it. I don't care how much I resist. No, get those fries away from me. Get those, put that unsalted, but I'll just have, I'll put that, have the unsalted, put the regular good stuff away. I'll just deal with it. Woe is me. And it just gets to be, it just gnaws at you. Resist that devil, but he doesn't flee. In my personal experience. So what is James getting at? There's, there's two things he says to do there. He said, one, submit to God. Amen. And then he sandwiches that in, resist the devil. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. So there's a, there's a swapping of appetites that we have to engage in. Amen. Right? So resist Satan by drawing near to God. It does me no good to resist salt if I don't satisfy my appetite with something good, with something healthy. Do you remember Jesus was tempted, Amen. right? Amen. And would you say Jesus resisted the devil? He resisted him the first time, right? He says, it is written. Well, did Satan flee from him? No. What did Satan do? Tempted him even more, right? And Jesus said, I'm sorry, it is written. So Jesus, Satan's tempting him with appetites that are pleasing in the world. You know, the salt, look at this salt. And God says, I have bread. Jesus says, I have bread. I'm going to eat the bread of life. Man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He goes back to the word of God. That's what he satisfies his appetite with. Satan continues to tempt him. Three times Satan tempts him, and three times the Lord resists. And finally, Satan gives up. But not forever. He was going to come back at a more opportune time. So this resisting that James talks about, it's not like a, I mean, I'm just telling you, we give up way too quick. Way too quick. We meet a little bit of resist. And it's in the word, resist. That doesn't mean you just say, well, no. And then give in to it the next time. I mean, the very next second. Well, I resisted, but it didn't flee. You did not fill your appetite. You did not draw near to God. You did not fill your appetite with something that would replace that evil, wicked temptation. You didn't go to the fountain to drink. You were still looking at that mud hole you dug. So James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee. I want to say in personal experience, it may not feel like that, but there's a reason he sandwiches that in with draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Run to Christ, church. James says, cleanse yourself 
Wash your hands in the fountain of living waters. Quit being double-minded. Stop digging cisterns that can't hold water and satisfy yourself in Him. He says, weep and mourn. You got to face the facts, church. We're adulterous people. And our adulterous relationship with idols demands repentance. We must mourn and weep over our twisted misdirections, misguided affections. We have to be sober in dealing with the reality of our sin. True repentance is deep and thorough. It's evident in the behavior of the person. It's not being sorry just because we got caught. It's being brokenhearted because we've offended a holy God who without the precious gift of His Son, we would all be doomed. In verse 10, we have the, what I think is a beautiful finish to this argument. Humble yourself before the Lord and He will exalt you. He starts by, therefore, submit yourself to God. Submit. That means to order your life. Submission is different than humbling. Submit means to, you can submit and not be humble. Submit means to order your life under the rule and authority for the benefit of the Lord. To His glory. Humble is humility. I can't do it. I've got nothing without you. The only, the only choice I have is to submit. Nor would I want to do anything else. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. What a beautiful way to sum up the Godward life. Humble yet exalted. And to borrow from the Apostle Paul, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich. Having nothing yet possessing everything. What an amazing Savior we serve. In the kingdom of God, His children will have all the joy and peace that we could ever hope for. Not because we acquired it for ourselves through our own efforts by digging mud holes in the ground, but because we drank freely from the fountain of living water and satisfied our souls in Him, not in the things that we provide. In fact, we turn ourselves away from the mud hole cisterns and towards a Godward life. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus once again. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray that it is gone for me uh, with clarity. Lord, I pray that you let it rest on our hearts. That we be humbled under it, Lord. Help us to order our affections rightly toward you. So that when those passions war within us, Lord, we choose you every time. Let us come to the fountain of living water to drink and forsake the mud holes. God, we love you. We thank you. Send us from here safely and bring us back safely at the appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.